This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 7. Hi there, and welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part seven, Siyah Kal and the Failure of the Left. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms, and we invite you to check out parts one through six of this series that have already been posted. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran, and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky, and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record, hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. That is Yazdani Law Group. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 7. Well, 50 years ago, this year, in 1971, a group of nine young Marxist guerrilla fighters attempted an attack in a small Iranian mountain town called Siakal. Their actions were rooted in resistance to what they saw as a brutal dictatorship in Iran under the Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. They failed. In fact, they were all hunted down and killed in the preceding weeks, but the incident at Siakal became widely viewed as a symbol of strength in the growth and determination of the left in Iran to take on the Pahlavi regime. And yet, less than a decade later, when a popular revolution swept the Shah out of power with the participation of the Marxists, the left would end up suffering a worse fate and were eventually crushed by the new Islamic regime. So why was the unsuccessful Siakal action such a pivotal event that still gets named as a proud symbol of leftist resistance in Iran? 
And how do we explain the notable failure of the left in Iran to attain any semblance of power throughout the 20th century, but especially after the revolution of 1979? My guest today is a specialist in this very area. Dr. Maziar Behruz is an Iranian-American historian, author, and associate professor in the Department of History at San Francisco State University. Maziar was born in Tehran, obtained his M.A. in the Modern History of Europe from San Francisco State, and then earned his Ph.D. in the Modern History of the Near East from the University of California, Los Angeles. He has taught at UC Berkeley, St. Mary's College of California, Stanford, and Bridgewater State, and his areas of expertise are the Middle East, Islamic history, and Iran in the 19th century. He is the author of Rebels with a Cause, The Failure of the Left in Iran. And right now, Dr. Maziar Behruz joins me from Berkeley, California today. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to have you on the program. You know, it occurs to me that we cannot possibly do a comprehensive history of the left in Iran in just one hour here. And so I wanted to clarify off the top, we won't be able to do it all in one go. Right. And I do want to focus on Siakal, the incident and the Siakal group and the subsequent or perhaps uninterrupted failure of the left in Iran. But I, I thought we might get some context first. Uh, the left has never held power in Iran, not even close, but you make the argument that the impact of the left on the political and intellectual history of Iran in the 20th century was profound, right up through the impact on Khomeini himself, and leftist forces in Iran were historically very advanced for the non-European world. Is that the case you would make? Correct. I think uh, the impact of uh, Marxist left, Marxist secular left, uh, is global and uh, remember this is cold war especially after second world war and uh, we have two camps facing off each other and then we have a number of revolutions uh, anti-colonial anti-imperialist revolutions which were you know before second world war, they were mostly nationalistic in iran and elsewhere and uh, after second world war you can see them they, that they're they're very much influenced by marxism either directly or indirectly. So you can see it in Latin America and, you know, the guerrilla movements there and the Sandinista movement, the Farabuna Marti movement and all, so on and so forth. So Iran is, is really part of that in a way. It's a part of a global move uh, movement. And uh, it also is uh, uh, in, in, in Iran itself, well, the leftist activists were uh, people who were usually f uh, from the better educated strata of society and they they attracted uh, uh, intellectuals, authors and uh, so on and so forth and so of course they, ha they had a lot of impact on the educated uh, segment of society. The, this, uh, you know, even before the guerrilla movement, this started before yes. the guerrilla movement yes. and continued with the guerrilla movement. Let me ask you before the guerrilla movement, in fact, before 1950, let's start there. I mean, there's, there's an obvious proximity of Iran to the Soviet Union. How much did what was happening in, in the Soviet Union, the Russian Revolution, Lenin, and then of, then, of course, Stalin, have an impact in growing communism and what was known as the Tudeh Party before 1950 in Iran? It had a lot of influence. Uh, Iran uh, uh, in 1941 was occupied by, by the Soviet Union, Britain, and the United States. 
for the duration of the war and communism in Iran under and the Today Party was created right after occupation in a uh, few weeks after that uh, in the summer of 1941 and uh, Soviet Marxism or as 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 they call it Russian commun- R- Russian Marxism uh what had a tremendous influence on Iran with uh, uh, with developments in Russia and consolidation of Stalinism and Stalin and Stalinism, uh, of course, that version uh, became more popular. But, you know, many Iranian communists who had fled to the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 1930s, as uh, Reza Shah, the father of the last Shah of Iran, was consolidating his position, many of them uh, fled to the Soviet Union, and there they were killed in the 1930s in the Great Purges. So uh, the Iranian communists actually paid a heavy price for this dependency on the Soviet Union. You make the case for um, the, the, the growing strength of the two-debt party, uh, particularly in, the, in the, the late first half of the 20th century, the 1940s into the early 1950s. But also you make the case that, the, I mean, this is kind of the history of the left in the 20th century in, in a nutshell in Iran, which, which is some strange decision-making. So before the 1970s, where we then have the Fadayin and the, the Mujahideen, it, it kind of is the story of the two-debt party in Iran. And as you say, there's this huge following that the two-day has that, that, but doesn't necessarily translate into anything when it comes to official power organizationally in Iran. There is the case that the two-day becomes tainted by its failure to oppose the CIA-sponsored coup against Dr. Mossadegh in 1953. So what happened there? How did the two-day end up on the side of an imperialist coup? They didn't uh, end up on the side of the imperialist coup. They had a lot of internal divisions. This is my thesis in the book, that those internal divisions in the leadership from the top down uh, paralyzed the uh, party. Uh, and it had uh, contradictory uh, positions on Mossadegh and uh, and the nationalist movement and the oil nationalization movement to the point that it uh, uh, basically uh, at some points supported Mossadegh, at some points criticized Mossadegh. But at any rate, when the coup d'etat itself uh, occurred, the today was an, uh, inactive. And this inactivity, lack of activity, of course, helped the coup d'etat. Now, if if the today wanted to help Mossadegh, it had to have a good relationship with uh, Mossadegh's uh, government, and it basically did not. The irony, of course, being that the Americans were labeling Mossadegh a communist. They were, and of course, that was part of the propaganda. Mossadegh was uh, uh, everything but communist. All he wanted to do was uh, to take Iran's oil back from the British and, of course, to limit the power of the Shah, turn him into a constitutional monarch, something that the Shah really did not want. There's something else that happens, though, as well, um, as we get past that coup in 1953 and especially into the 1960s. And that's the, the, the growth of power of the, the Shah and the, and the Pahlavi regime. How impenetrable was the um, was the reality or even the idea of opposing the Shah by the end of the 1960s Maziar. I'm thinking of the oil income that had come gushing into Iran and the fact that the, the Shah had assembled the most powerful army in the Middle East with the support of the West and had established Savak, which of course became known as the most imposing secret police force in the region. What hope realistically did 
leftist activists have by, say, the late 60s? Uh, the, the spirit of 1960s, the generation of 1960s, is a rebellious generation. It's not only in Iran. It's, it's in Paris, it's in Berkeley, uh, and anti-Vietnam War and support for the Palestinians and uh, free speech movement in this country. Uh, this is a rebellious generation, and in Iran you have a uh, similar events happening. A generation that is looking at the situation in Iran and looking at the Pahlavi regime and at the Shah and saying, okay, this guy is... Uh, subverting the constitution and the government has confiscated civil society there is no pol free political party there is no free uh, media there is uh, there is no free association everything is held by the government and the, 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 there were two uh, you know the discussions of this period uh, are of two kind you know what, what some people were saying you know we have to wait and see uh, when a situation will change. And there were the, those who were saying, you know, we need to answer repression with resistance. And uh, that is how uh, the guerrilla movement is born. And uh, it, is born, it was born independent from each other. The one, one group is completely uh, Islamic and trying to revise uh, Islamic tradition into uh, turning it into a combative modern political movement. The other one is a Marxist-Leninist, but in line with most uh, kind of Latin American uh, movements like Che Guevara and Cuban Revolution and uh, and what happened there rather than the Soviet Union or China. The, the two of them uh, eventually uh, start taking on the regime uh, in the 1970s and of course that uh, the attack uh, on that uh, police station in northern uh, in, uh, in the Caspian region of Iran was the result of uh, the Fadayan uh, uh, declaring their conflict, their war against the Shah. Okay, so let me get to that. That's a perfect, perfect segue. I gotta, and I want to get to that that moment in Siakal. But just before we get there, and I don't want to, sure. I don't want this to be a, spo a spoiler, but but isn't the reason that Siakal becomes such a pivotal event? Uh, partly rooted in the fact that the left was so neutered or neutralized by the Pahlavi regime up until that point, that that it really had been ineffective, notwithstanding any 1960s spirit, etc. Well, the left in the in early 1960s, when there is kind of relaxation of repression. Uh, uh, followed by the Shah's land reform program, what he called the White Revolution, uh, which was a major uh, reform of Iran's socio-economic, uh, an overhauling of Iran's uh, society and uh, and economy. The left uh, was uh, completely marginal, and uh, the two-day party didn't exist. It was not able to reconstitute itself inside the country, uh, and the leftist groups were really evolved in. Uh, in the universities and in conjunction with uh, with other uh, what they call the bourgeois groups, uh, nationalists and all that. But uh, uh, there is no organized left uh, uh, as such. So what one of the discussions that these people are having, these young people are having in the 1960s, is that we need to reconstitute left. And in order to do that, we need to make sure that we have a 
this uh, space or distance between us and the Tudor party, which has a bad reputation, right. it had performed poorly before uh, in the 1953 coup d'etat, it is too close to the Soviet Union, uh, and it is it has failed to promote the interests of Iranian working class, uh, and it has compromised Iran for the needs of the Soviet Union. Right. So. Uh, they wanted to start something from scratch. They knew the cost would be very high. They knew that uh, uh, the that they are not going to live that long if they start, if, if they went through this path. They were aware of the power of the state and its repressive organs, including especially the Savak, the secret police, which was, uh, which was a brutal organization. They knew all of this. Nevertheless, they said, okay, we have, you know, th this is why I say it's the spirit of the 1960s. Um, we have to uh, do this in order to uh, recover the reputation and, um, and prestige of the left in Iran. Uh, and Siakal itself was a, was a complete failure. Right. So let's get to it. What happened on February 8th, 1971, in this small northern Iranian town of Siakal? Well, the, the guerrillas were uh, compromised, and they were forced into, some of the, the, the two, two members were arrested, uh, and they were forced into premature uh, action. The two of their comrades were taken to this police station in Siakal, which is a small village, uh, and uh, it wasn't a police station, it was kind of a gendarmerie, it was a country police. And uh, they decided to attack it and free them. Uh, and say it's premature because they were not quite ready to start guerrilla activity, although they had mapped the area and they had created uh, safe stations uh, of uh, you know with food and ammunition they were not still ready and and yet they were forced to do this because of these two getting arrested and uh, so they attacked and then the government brought in uh, tremendous force uh, surrounded them and eventually uh, arrested them and uh, executed them so the, the 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 operation itself was quite failure but what it triggered was now um, uh, between 1971 and 1979, uh, uh, um, eight years of intense guerrilla activity based in urban areas of Iran by both Muslim guerrillas and and Marxist guerrillas. You know, it's a, a, it's a funny thing because I remember the, when I first read about the Siakal and. Uh, you, not, not to take anything away from the nine lives lost, and and you know, but but it, on the face of it, it, it seems uh, like kind of an innocuous incident. I mean, it, sort of another anecdote of some activism and state state pushback in Iranian modern history. You wouldn't, on the face of it, think, okay, this is the this is the moment. You know, that um, why did this event become a symbol of uncompromising resistance in Iran? Because it was uncompromising resistance. Uh, it was done uh, at a time when the Shah was at the peak of his power. And uh, he could see he had crushed all the opposition or neutralized them. Uh, he had sent Khomeini to exile in Iraq. He had uh, imprisoned uh, Mossadegh, who died in '65, And he has completely crushed and neutralized the Tudor party. So the Shah, you know, in 1970-71, looking to his left, looking to his right, looking in front of him, uh, he could see no enemies. He was there. He was a big um, 
uh, ally of the West uh, in a chain. He was in a military alliance. Uh, he was a, he was playing an important role in this uh, defense of uh, uh, the West against the East, uh, against the Soviet Union. So uh, the, 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 the the regime was at the peak of his power when the when the, the Siachal, uh, uh, attack occurred. So uh, because of this, because uh, they dared to do it, uh, they became, you know, this is a very romantic situation. You know, a number of guerrillas in cold weather attacking a police station, getting fighting, getting killed, getting arrested and getting executed. So all of this together uh, made uh, the bigger, larger population, especially the middle class in Iran, modern middle class in Iran, very much aware of them and very much uh, respecting them. You know, you can see it in movies. You can see it in novels. I was going to say, poetry. I mean, the fate of these nine Marxists who were killed in that period has inspired, you know, dozens of songs, works of art, movies, uh, in, in some cases in defiance of unwritten bans under the Shah and then under the Islamic Re uh, Republic after 79. It's, it's amazing that this incident captures the cultural imagination of Iran as well, yes? Yeah, that is my point exactly. They they didn't lead the revolution. They didn't create a people's army. They didn't. Uh, they were not able even to tap into the working class because the repressive organs were very strong. At best, they could really find their find their allies and recruit from the universities, not the working class, which they wanted to uh, to lead into a successful mass revolution against the Shah. But what they did accomplish was to keep the spirit of resistance up, keep the idea that the Shah and his regime and all his repressive organs are not invincible. The invincibility of the regime was cracked. And I think that is a very important contribution of the guerrilla movement. But it's amazing because it wasn't cracked. They were killed. But it's the spirit, you know, that, that was there, right? That's that's the that's kind of the they point. Were, they were killed, but the continuation of the movement in the 1970s cracked, uh, cracked the... Uh, the image of the regime that was trying to perpetuate that I, that the Shah and is invincible, that the government is invincible. What the government was trying to say to the people is that you should not challenge me because there is no chance you can do anything. That, that equation was cracked because the guerrillas continued. You know, after Siachal, you have uh, seven years of intense guerrilla activity in Iranian cities. Right. Many people are getting killed, yes. Many guerrillas are getting killed, yes. The average life of a guerrilla from the point that he or she went underground uh, was six months. Uh, uh, and they knew, they knew this, what, what they were doing. What they accomplished, the most important aspect of their accomplishment is to keep the spirit up. And the fact that they were getting killed, I mean, there's... By mid-78, there's hundreds of guerrilla fighters who have been resisting the Shah who have been killed. I, um, historian Ervand Abrahimian outlines in his book, Iran Between Two Revolutions, that the yes. casualties of this moment, of the Pahlavi regime, earn the guerrillas' respect in a society yes. where martyrdom has been historically valued. It sounds like you agree? Yes, yes of course. There's a, if you don't mind me asking, there's an interesting little tidbit, maybe a sidebar, maybe, maybe it's parenthetical, that when I'm researching the Siakal that uh, I want to ask you about the significance of. The, it's always pointed out that the Siakal group members, these Marxist guerrillas in 71, 
we're all wearing ties and we're clean shaven. What is the significance of pointing that out? Well, this goes with the culture of 1960s. When the, the, the photographs you see from them are photographs that they have from the university graduates. So uh, in the 1960s, people wore Thai and they were shaved. They had mustache, they fancied mustache, but they were mostly shaved and wore Thai and they were clean uh, in that sense. But those are the available photographs of them, you know. Some of some people, uh, some of the gorillas, we only have a one very very blur photograph of. Maybe their families didn't provide them. Maybe uh, um, uh, they, they were just not available. So um, the availability of the photograph determines I see. what can be. But published. they were young, handsome. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's interesting based on the stereotypes of what you expect the you know gorilla fighters to be. I suppose maybe that's uh, it. It plays into that. Um, so let me ask you then, it, with this as the backdrop, as we head into the the, the 1970s and into the, the late 70s and the lead up to the revolution, there are these mass worker strikes that happen, economic and political strikes in the streets. I mean, the kind of thing that, you know, traditionally you'd think groups of the left dream about mobilizing. Why did that not translate into power for the left as the main force behind ousting the Shah? Well, workers' strikes in Iran started very late in the revolution. So if the rev revolution began, was sparked initially in January of 1978, and everything was over in February of 1979, so it's about 13 months. During these 13 months, the working class people, especially the oil industry workers, really joined in mass strikes during the last four months. Why? Uh, there are different um, explanations for that. One important explanation is that the Shah was very uh, much uh, aware that he needed to keep the working class happy. So there was a lot of uh, accommodations for the working people in terms of uh, insurance, salaries and other benefits given to them, housing and all that. Uh, that is why they joined in very late. But once they joined in, electricity workers, uh, workers of um, printing houses, and of course the most important of all, the oil industry workers, once they joined in during the last four months after, uh, after the revolution, they crippled the regime and brought it down. Um, so, uh, as far as the left is concerned, mind you, the repression uh, that the guerrillas rose up against was much stronger than the guerrillas. So they were not really able to have a organic and close relationship with the working class. They were not able to go into the factories and agitate. They were not able to um, uh, penetrate uh, the state-controlled unions. Uh, what they could do was to gain support from among the university students, mm -hmm. which uh, when they got ready, they would become, they would go underground and would, they would join the ranks of the guerrillas. Is that the reason though? Is it, is it just that they, it's a retail politics? They weren't able to get into the, I mean, I mean, why doesn't the Fadain, um, as you said in this interview, they, they remain this entity of the intelligentsia, even by the late 1970s, it was never a mass movement. And I wonder, you know, why not? Why, why didn't the Marxists find a base in the working class? Why didn't the working class you in cannot, Iran? You cannot create a mass movement in the atmosphere of repression. 
You know, the two-day party was a mass movement, but that is between 1941 and 1953, where there was a lot of opening, political opening, and space for political activity, first under Allied occupation, and then under a constitutional rule until the CIA coup d'etat in 1953. Under dictatorship, especially if it is a violent dictatorship, there's no way you can organize and have mass organizations. You get killed, you get destroyed. After the revolution, one can argue why they didn't, and we can talk about that. But during the Shah's uh, uh, strength, you know, when, when he was strong, and during the 1960s and 70s, the guerrillas uh, were not able, they tried, but were failed uh, to create a mass organization. So is it the, up until, we'll get to the revolution in a second, but then up until 79, is it the failure of the left, or is it the success of the the, the Pahlavi regime? The, the Pahlavi regime was able to neutralize the guerrillas to a great degree, not to destroy them, but to neutralize them by preventing them from uh, accessing their base. So in that sense, they were successful. They were not successful in completely annihilating them. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was kind of a stalemate in a way between the two when the revolution occurred. Once the revolution occurred, you know, by the summer of 1978, by September of 1978, there's no doubt who the leader of that revolution well, is. Well, here's the thing. I mean, the Masia, at the, the revolution time, I mean, it, it, it turns into a bit of a circus of incongruity on the left, doesn't it? The two deaf first cozies up to the Khomeinists and then informs on the Fadayin and the Mujahideen, the Maoist side with the Islamic liberals. I mean, what, what are we to make of what happens in within that year with the, the left kind of fracturing and breaking apart? Within that 13 months, the closest thing is, it, listen, during the Shah's time, every independent association was put down uh, except the chain uh, and the network of mosques in the country. The Shah believed and others believe too that if you allow Islamists, if you, if you allow religious people to function that would be a good uh, uh, remedy for preventing communism from expanding. So in order to fight communism, let Islamists um, uh -huh. function. Uh -huh. Not Islamists like Khomeini, who challenged the regime, but the others. So while you could not find books written by leftists, uh, you could easily find books written by Islamists in Iran. They had the printing houses, they could publish books, they could agitate, and as long as they did not directly challenge the regime. And that's what they did. Khomeini had a network among this mosque uh, system mm -hmm. throughout the country. Yes. That network then began to grow and eventually take over uh, the bigger network. And so while the left had to live in guerrilla hideouts, and uh, when they came out, they had to have cyanide in their mouth in, t in case they get caught, they would right. commit suicide. The Islamists had a vast network throughout the country that they could utilize because the Shah had not shut it down. 
they could utilize to uh, convey their message. For example, Khomeini's messages was uh, messages were written down by telephone or cassette tapes, and then uh, distributed through that network. So Khomeini was known. What the left, it had completely lost much of his leadership. Uh, and we're talking about the guerrillas, right. both the Mujahideen and the Fadayan. Right. The Tudeh party was discredited and was living in East Germany. He had no idea what was going on. But, you know, just as, a, just as a thought experiment, though, uh, would it have made a difference if there was one party that somehow unified and represented the left in Iran? I mean, because, you, you know, by the 70s, uh, sectarianism is abounding. And by the time of the revolution and afterward, there, there appears to be myriad groups representing, you know, Every ideological position and tactic of the of the international left w w would it have made a difference in your mind if there if if be it the two day or the father you know whomever had consolidated hard, the left somehow? Hard to answer. Hard, it's hard to answer that question because you know, as a historian, I talk about what has happened and not what could have happened. But I can tell you this, and I have said it in my book, that after the revolution. After the revolution, between 1979 and 1981, when all political parties were decimated by the uh, Islamic Republic, which was trying to consolidate power, had the opposition, much of it left, stood for democratic rights, stood for women's rights, for uh, minority rights, for freedom of press, had they all came together and stood for democratic rights, perhaps they could. I'm just saying perhaps because it's, this is fantasy. Mm -hmm. Perhaps they could prolong the consolidation of the new regime and buy time for themselves so that they can better organize. Because the distance between the fall of the Shah and the decimation of the opposition is February 79 to June 1981. Mm -hmm. Then is, everything is gone. And instead of unify, uniting with each other, they were quarreling with each other. They were fighting with each other. And of course, this gave the opportunity for the government to uh, eliminate all of them. But there's a crisis of confusion, you might say. I, I mean, I, I, I know this somewhat intimately because as a university student, 10, 15 years later, I remember the left still quarreling about whether <laughs> we should support the revolution or not. You know, in retrospect, uh, the confusion at the revolution time would have been that the left is caught wondering whether it should be <laughs> opposing an increasingly power-hungry mullah leadership, co-opting power and incrementally eliminating one faction at a time of the somewhat of a coalition of, you know, the people who the revolution or siding with those same mullahs because they ostensibly represent the defeat of this imperialist power and this monarchy that the left has wanted to get rid of for decades so they're falling in the crevice right and after the revolution there were two camps opposing the islamic republic one camp led by the Tudeh party and nureddin kianuri its first secretary was that the islamic republic is undemocratic, but it is anti-imperialist. It's anti-American, especially after they took over the U.S. embassy in Tehran. So we have to convince the Islamic Republic, we have to convince the people uh, in charge that we are a loyal opposition <laughs> and that we have something to give. We have the backing of the socialist camp. We have the backing of the Soviet Union. So that is one, one group. The second group believe that the Islamic Republic is reactionary. 
is capitalist and it is repressive and we need to stand against this uh, government and prevent it from a consolidation. Kurdish groups, uh, uh, a variety of leftist groups, as the major split in Fadayan, the majority wing went with the Tudeh party, the minority wing was belonged to the second group. Uh, they all believe that they have to confront the Islamic Republic. But the reality is they were not ready for it. They were not preparing for it. And uh, the once repression came, they all, you know, disintegrated. Very didn't, quickly. didn't they, like too many people, underestimate the ferocity of what the Islamic Republic was going to be capable of? Uh, they knew what they are capable of. They knew. But remember, Khomeini is very popular. Uh, and he is using that popularity to get rid of all, the, all, all of these groups. Once he was ready to do it, he used the, the hostage situation, and then after that, yeah. the, uh, the war, the, the war yes, to rally the population behind the regime, and uh, and, and 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 through that, uh, really outmaneuvered the opposition. First, the radical opposition, then the Tudeh party, and and uh, and his its supporters, they were all eliminated by 1983. They're all gone. Yeah, you make this the case, I mean, uh, as have others, that that the Islamic Republic goes on to crush the left in a way that the the it had never been, I mean, it had been repressed, but it hadn't been um, crushed, eliminated that, like this. How was that made possible? Well, crushing is crushing. Uh, yeah, the, the biggest group that uh, challenged the Islamic Republic was the Mujahideen. Uh, which had not gone through any splits. It had prepared itself by creating a potent uh, military wing, uh, military arm, uh, and uh, it managed to gain the support of the Islamic Republic's president, Bani Sadr, who died a few, few weeks ago uh, in Paris. And uh, so they thought, okay, we are ready now. Uh, the, the regime has split. The president is with us. Uh, we will uh, mobilize and we can overthrow the regime. So in summer of 1981 to through the year 1982, Iran is in a state of not only an external war, but an internal civil war with the Mujahideen and other smaller groups. Because once the Mujahideen started, once they went from to, uh, to the armed struggle phase against the regime, the regime moved against everybody, not just Mujahideen. Mm -hmm. They just moved against everybody mm -hmm. and, uh, and eliminated everybody uh, as well as Mujahideen. And it was very brutal. Yes, many, many people died. And thousands of people died. I, my estimate is something close to 20,000 people died. There are um, vestiges, as you know, of the of the parties of the left from from the twentieth century that still exist in the diaspora. You see them at uh, Iranian uh, events and gatherings and and rallies and things like that. Um, uh, what about inside Iran in the last thirty or forty years? Uh, what has happened to any sort of um, recognizable uh, vestige of the left? Once the Soviet Union was gone uh, in 1991, and once China 
uh, got rid of Marxism by holding on to Leninism, but getting rid of Marxism. Once this was done, the appeal of that type of uh, ideology uh, began to recede and uh, be replaced by other uh, avenues. So, for example, uh, in Europe, right, uh, the, the appeal of the Communist Party of Eastern European countries uh, vanished. Uh, and uh, today, if you look at Germany and look at elections in France and other places, uh, political organizations that are kind of left but with a new agenda, like the Green Party, yeah. like the social socialist parties yeah. of a variety of they are replacing left the uh, left uh, in, in in the context that we knew it during the Cold War. Same thing should happen in Iran. But the fact is that in Iran. The, uh, f during the past 40 years, you know, except for the first two years, two and a half years, in Iran there is no political party. There is no political, uh, ideology. There is no, uh, ability to organize. And the regime is very much, um, sensitive toward any type of organization right. that may grow to become a challenge to its control over the country. But outside Iran, uh, of course, there's a large Iranian population living in diaspora, like yourself and myself. Yes. And uh, the, the, these people are trying to redefine the left by learning from experiences of other leftist uh, movements in other countries. Because Iran uh, is a developing country, and its leftist movements, its nationalist movement, any movement that it has, had been influenced tremendously by other movements, and that's very natural for it to happen. Uh, so they are perhaps learning, but uh, uh, it, it remains to be seen. It remains to be seen. I don't think a, a healthy society uh, can uh, have no left uh, and, and no right, and no middle. A healthy society will have all of this. But Iran is far away from that right now. Mm. There was a, a moment uh, in, in the lead up to the revolution, I suppose, and, and perhaps thereafter, where there was uh, the dream for some of some fusion of Marxism and Islam, the Islamic socialists, the Islamic Marxists. Is that still in existence anywhere? No, it's not. I don't think so. There are those in Iran who uh, emphasize social justice, uh, but they were all kind of marginalized from the Islamic Republic. They, they were at the beginning of the revolution, part of the bandwagon, but now they are completely marginalized. And Mujahideen, who were actually the Islamic socialists, the closest thing to Islamic yeah. socialists, had become an ally of United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia. So there's nothing left of that socialism in their, in their discourse. A final question to you. I, I appreciate your time today. Um, You're welcome. Sio Cal, back to the, the incident that is the, the precipitant for our conversation to a certain extent. It's quite a remarkable thing, you know, that we're still talking about it 50 years later. I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about how two regimes <laughs> have done what they can to taint the memory of the Siakal group as as terrorists or, or infidels, you know, now. Uh, and yet the story still finds resonance. Uh, what, what do you think we learn from that? Uh, 
you know, history histories are written by historians uh, with the hope that uh, a public uh, memory uh, will uh, be influenced by them. So uh, you're right. I think the fact that Siakal is not has not been forgotten, and you're still talking about it. Uh, it's because it was a, a unique, uh, unique event. That whole generation's uprising against the Shah's regime was very unique, uh, and I think that is the attraction of it. What will happen in the future? I think it will be part of uh, the common memory of Iranians, and hopefully, it will play a positive role in coming up with solutions for the future. Dr. Maziar Behruz. Merci. Thank you for your time and your insights. Bye-bye. Take care. Dr. Maziar Behrouz, an Iranian-American historian, author, associate professor in the Department of History at San Francisco State University. Dr. Behrouz joined us from Berkeley, California today. This is full time for the Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC on Instagram. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That is our website, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who make Rook Media happen. Savvy Roham, Super Parisa, Producer Susan, Ponce of the Artist, The Fabulous Keon, Aray Mehrdad, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. Become a sponsor or a patron at our website, rookmedia.com, where you can get in touch with us. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashin. Bashin.